Welcome, chaps, to another week of, uh, you know, Pan's crappingly awesome content. I've been asked to contribute to a new group of content creators under the uh, banner of the spiritual right. Um, so I guess you could probably tell from the name that we are kind of loosely affiliated, I would say, under the banner of the right, whatever that is. We're not all the same, uh, I think, as you will hear in the following recording. Some are kind of right wing libertarians, American type conservatives kind of thing. Uh, there's uh, one person there that's uh, essentially heterodox. And um, as you as you all know now, I'm uh, basically a you know, what I guess a lunatic, futurist, rightist, Nietzschean, Buddhist, something or other. And there's, um, you know, literally no contradiction there, regardless of what people tell you. Uh, and I've already resolved that stupid argument at length. So in short, anyway, uh, we don't all agree all the time on things. But what does bind us, and I think this goes for a lot of you as well, is that basically, I think we refused to sacrifice children to Moloch. And thus, um, we're being cruelly barred from our respective places of worship. So I think it's probably safe to say that we've had our fill of commie pinko losers and their modern obsession with all shades of cretinous nonsense. So this is the space that's been created for, um, you know, interviews, streams, YouTube vids, uh, I think eventually there's even plans for retreats. But most of all, I guess the scourge of any you know, semblance of modernistic, sentimental, left-leaning kind of trash. Uh, finally, i just say that I think that, you know, I think you're, you'd all agree that politics has been done to death online and in podcasts. Personally, I think it's incredibly boring and always have. Uh, this is really, in many ways... Just an incredibly pathetic time in history. Like, there's, you know, there's no great people. There's no vision. It's just, you know, as, as some people have commented, a kind of endless yeast-like proliferation of comfort-seeking, lowest common denominator humans with their pathetic problems. And, uh, you know, it's enough to make you sick. So we're, we're trying to err away from any commentary, you know, on the last man's lowly station. And, and focus on something else, something a bit more positive and personally beneficial to people, things that they can use, and really uh, to get those uh, brain juices flowing. So anyway, without further ado, enjoy podcast one of The Spiritual Right, and I will keep you updated of further movements within that group. Enjoy. So thank you all for joining us. This is the first podcast for The Spiritual Right, and uh, my name is Manu. Uh, also go by Humble Stature. And um, we've been working on this project for quite a while, maybe the last six months. And uh, our intention here really is to kind of articulate and talk about what we see as the spiritual right and topics that relate to it. Um, we're politically incorrect truth seekers that are really looking to try to push the envelope and discuss our ideas. I think all of us to some degree have kind of been ostracized from the normal, very left-leaning spiritual groups that are kind of looking to create something new. Um, all of us come from different backgrounds, different beliefs, and have different experience. And so I'm um, hoping by putting this all together, you guys can uh, get some value and find it interesting. Um, as far as what we're doing, we're going to be putting out a video pretty much every week, um, answering different questions, and then we're going to do a podcast every month. And that is this podcast you're watching. So um, 
to start off, I just wanted to talk a little bit about who I am and who everyone else is. This is kind of our first time really formally introducing ourselves on the channel. And so um, to start things off, uh, yeah, my name is Manu. And um, I would say I'm pretty much like a Buddhist slash Hindu. I'm kind of something in between. I was raised in a um, Kashmir Shaivite ashram where my parents both spent 10 years and the first five years of my life were there. And um, then after that, my mom used to organize different events for different teachers here in L.A. And then when I was 13, 14, 15, I was doing Native American vision quests out in the forest. Uh, my father was raised Native American. and um, He's Canadian. So we're like Canadian Native American, technically Ojibwa. And um, yeah, I had a major spiritual awakening around 14 that made me really question what reality was and who I was. It was basically an out-of-body experience on the second retreat I'd done. And um, after that, I uh, basically fell into a deep depression. And um, it really took me a solid, how many years? Solid five years to maybe come out of that. And I kind of found martial arts, started getting really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wanted to be a pro fighter after high school. So from 16 to about maybe 20, uh, 23, 24, that was basically my life. And I went to school part-time. And then after that, I spent a whole year at a Vipassana SN Goenka Center uh, in Central California, where I got really deep into meditation and thought I'd become a chaplain. But... um Instead, I, go, I ended up going back to school, finished my bachelor's, and uh, and worked a little while, maybe like a couple years, two or three years after that, and uh, decided that um, I wanted to go to Korea and teach English. I, I almost got married. I had a Korean girlfriend for almost four years, and um, while I really enjoyed Korea, I couldn't see living the rest of my life there. So I ended up leaving, and um, after such a long relationship, the only logical thing that I could think of was to become a monk. So I became a Theravada Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka and basically traveled around the world for about 15 months after that, going to different monasteries and um, talking to different people and doing a lot of meditation. But um, as fate would have it, I uh, basically 15 months was about all I could take. So I disrobed and um, did some more traveling on my own after that. And... Um, after all that traveling, I ended up eventually coming back home to Los Angeles where I live and was raised. And um, here in Los Angeles, uh, I was kind of trying to discover what I wanted to do um, and basically decided to become a uh, psychologist. So I'm actually in an MA to PhD program for psychology and currently studying that while I also work full time. And so that's a little bit about me. And so, uh, yeah, with that said, I'm going to hand it over to Pano. All you, buddy. What? <clears throat> well, as Manu says, my name is Panyo or Pano or Panyo Basa. Um, go by a few other names too, but uh, might as well do not muddy the waters too much. And uh, I, uh, I first got interested in um, Dharma or spirituality or religion through my father, who was a very strange fellow and uh, a hypnotist experimented with the occult and witchcraft and so forth and uh, uh, claimed to remember a number of his past lives. And uh, he was, uh, he considered himself to be a Buddhist, but his, his Buddhism was very strange because he learned most of it from a dead Vietnamese monk coming through a woman in a trance. So 
his uh, his Buddhism was rather strange, but um, still, it was it, it caused me to be very open minded as uh, as a boy, and um, probably much more. I had more options than the average person, just because most people, the way they're raised, you know, they're just uh, part of the culture, and you know, it's it's leaving that culture is not really uh, perceived as an option. So. Uh, starting with that, just having the uh, the strange father, um, like most most kids, I just assumed that uh, adults have everything figured out, or at least the important stuff. And uh, the reason I didn't have it figured out was because I was still a kid. And uh, by around the age of 13, I was becoming um, skeptical of, of this theory. And by the time I was 16, it just became plainly obvious that uh, the adults were just as messed up as I was. And so I went just into open rebellion and uh, almost flunked out of school, got into lots of trouble. But as it turned out, um, my father in a towering rage made me uh, start seeing a youth counselor. And the youth counselor was a spiritual person who got me interested in Ram Dass and uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and that sort of thing. And um, it just seemed like th at first I didn't really understand it. I couldn't really integrate it into what I already knew. You know, in order to really um, absorb something, you have to be able to connect it with other things that you already know. And um, it was just so alien that it, it was. I couldn't really fit it into anything at first, but nevertheless, intuitively, I felt that deep down there was something to it that was much better than just chasing after money, for example, or just partying and getting into trouble all the time. It was uh, there was like a reality, a level of reality that was much deeper. And so starting at around the age of 16 or 17, I uh, decided I was going to renounce the world and uh, live a spiritual life to some degree. And um, at around the age of 27, I was ordained as a Theravada Buddhist monk and uh, lived mostly in Burma. And uh, a lot of that time just living alone in forest caves. Um, my main purpose as a monk was really to understand reality. You know, you've got these ancient books that say, you know, it is possible in this life to 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 know ultimate reality and so i figured if if that's what the books say and it's possible then uh it's like a sacred duty to at least give it a shot so that's what i did and uh, meditated a lot and um, followed the rules of monastic discipline relatively strictly because um i didn't want to be cheating you know it's like you're gonna join this group you might as well follow the rules and um i did a lot of study into what the earliest Buddhism was like, because I really didn't want to follow along with like uh, an Asian tradition, like a cultural tradition. If I was going to be a, a Buddhist, I wanted to follow what the Buddha originally taught as well as I was able. But um, eventually, after more than 20 years in Burma, I started uh, getting Burma burnout and wanted to come back to America, wanted to speak English wanted to uh, stop sweating all the time, that sort of thing. But in America, it's just uh, being a Theravada Buddhist monk, especially a strict one, just doesn't work very well. Um, it's just the culture is just so alien that you're like a, 
you're like a, a tropical potted plant, like a, a strictly practicing Buddhist monk in the West is like a potted plant that has to have people taking special care of it and it has to live in a protected environment. It can't just live naturally outdoors like in Asia. And uh, there are some other reasons also that we needn't uh, get into too much here. But um, uh, eventually I uh, dropped out of the monkhood after after 30 years as a monk. I was a Mahatera uh, senior a great, a great elder in the Theravada Buddhist Sangha. And uh, I decided to uh, renounce all of that. It's sort of another great renunciation. And uh, now I'm living in South Carolina with my sweetheart and uh, working in a sheet metal shop. So I'm no longer a member of the leisure class. And uh, it, uh, it does, I mean, it takes a lot of time and energy just uh, working to pay the bills, but uh, this is America, and uh, that's just uh, just the way things go here, apparently. So here I am, and uh, I think I'll pass the baton on to uh, Mark. All right. My name is Mark, and uh, in the Zen world, I'm known as Otomo. So my story, uh, my humble beginnings in Begins uh, mostly. I was a up in Portland, Oregon. I was um, a child of the '60s and '70s, and um, was very much as a teenager growing up in the um, the hippie culture or the anti-Vietnam. And um, as I got into the high school years, all of us boys were being told that we were going to be going to Vietnam. It was they were grooming us for that. Um, I started to become spiritually awakened or aware around that time um, that there was something more than just what the phenomenal world was presenting itself to me. And I started to, you know, was reading books and asking questions. And my parents were at, the, at that point in time in Oregon, there was a lot of eclectic kind of um, groups that were around uh, various types of Indian or various type of um, Buddhist groups. And we also had at that time the Rajneesh, which we called them the red people back in the day. And um, my parents uh, befriended some Raj, some Rajneesh. They didn't live in their compound. They just lived right across the street. So we would go, I would go over and talk to them and they would give me materials to read and things to think about. Well, and that was the seed for my, uh, my Zen journey. Um, so as I got in, I ended up joining the military. Uh, that was the Navy did that for about five, four or five years. Uh, got out of that, uh, went into the colleges and was kind of interested in philosophy, um, not so much as uh, psychology. I didn't really think there was a whole lot of value there and was was really looking at philosophy and then started to, you know, have a discussions with the uh, with the professors. And it's kind of they were kind of hinting that, well, maybe I should look at Buddhism. Maybe I should check out the Buddhist path because they seemed to feel that I had a more of a mind for that direction. So. You know, as of course, what you do is you you when you're interested in looking something up, you go to the spiritual bookstore and you go to the spiritual directory and you open it right up. And I found the Zen section, and 
it was the it was the Oregon Zen Priory and the Dharma Rain Zen Center, and that was it. So you know, you you kind of do eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And the first one I went to was the uh, Oregon Zen Priory, which was a um, a satellite of the uh, Shasta Abbey at the time. And I went there, and I was horribly underimpressed. I, I didn't really have anything uh, to think about the people. So then I went to the the next one I went to was the Dharma Rain Zen Center. And I'd really made a strong connection with the teacher, Keoghan Carlson. And uh, I kind of then kind of said, well, I'm going to go join these guys. Um, only later to find out that that was a renegade uh, group from the Shasta Abbey Zen Center. So they were both Shasta Abbey groups. One was official and then one was renegade. And I, I so happened to join the renegades. So... Um, I ended up actually about like 1980. See, I, I became I became a confirmed ordained bodhisattva in about 85, and then about 87, I actually moved into the Dharma Rain Zen Center as a resident, and I stayed as a resident till about 90. 1991, I moved to the San Francisco Zen Center with all the intentions of being a Zen monk. And I was really wanting to. Uh, the, 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 the two uh, Zen priests uh, at the Dumber Rain Zen Center told me that, you know, they don't have a training monastery because they were renegades. And that it would be best if I, if I wanted to be a Zen monk to go to a Zen monastery that can actually train me. So the San Francisco Zen Center was the only closest one, and because other, otherwise I would have to go to the East Coast. So then I uh, went there, and I spent um, about three years bouncing be- between Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco, and then ended up in the uh, Tassajara Zen Monastery for about a year. Um, there, doing their uh, monk training program. Um, then I, there, there was a lot of situations there that didn't work out for me um, because I came from a renegade temple and I didn't come through their systems. I was the odd man out. And they made it very clear to me that while I was welcome to be there and meditate, that they would not train me. So with with the message well given, um, I went back to Portland and kind of told the teacher there that, hey, you know, they made it very clear that you're a renegade and I'm not welcome. And they said, well, that's that's that sucks. So they said, go find another temple, go find another training center. So, you know, I wrote some letters and stuff like that and basically was getting the same answer was that because I didn't go through them initially for my my Zen tutelage and training that I was damaged goods and don't even bother. So um, I kind of hit the road at that point. I got invited uh, to do some traveling with a friend, but then I went to, I went to San Francisco to meet up with her, and that didn't work out. So then I went down to Santa Cruz because one of the uh, monks that was at Tassajara ended up as an abbot uh, at one of the uh, smaller uh, San Francisco Zen centers. So I thought I'd go down and talk to him because I liked him. And then I ended up getting a job. I was down there and I ended up getting a job, believe it or not, at a Tibetan retreat center called Vajrapani. 
And I thought that was really great. And so um, I was there. It was up in the Santa Cruz um, hillsides, or I guess they called them the Santa Cruz Mountains. And that was really uh, a very interesting experience because a lot of the um, uh, Tibetan royalty would go through there and uh, do their retreats and do their um, lectures. So I got a really good look at the uh, Tibetan Vajrayana system, and it became clear to me that I wanted nothing to do with it. It was definitely not my path, uh, the, the Vajrayana. I, they could, they, and they called me the Roshi. That's what they called me there because they they could see the Zen in me. So they every time I would be doing a work, they'd go, "Oh, there goes the Roshi." So it was very clear to them I was I was a Zen guy, and my heart was was for Zen. I ended up um, going back to Portland, moving in with my mom, and uh, then eventually getting a job and becoming normal. I ended up doing things like working for Microsoft for a while and working for different um, software spinoffs. Um, ended up uh, years later after that marrying a Chinese girl. Uh, actually went to China and you know visited her, her family, and we got married in China, then came back to the United States, and then somebody blew up some Twin Towers in New York, and I had to wait through all that. And it took a long time for her to get over here after that. But then she did, and we spent 17 years together, um, and about uh, and at, during those those years um, prior to that, I was uh, involved in finding what what was real Zen, what was what was Zen really about, and um, I met uh, Zenmar, the the Georgia mystic, and I would actually would be flying out to him several times to. To, to stay with him and his his family, um, learning more of a what we call the esoteric Zen or the intuitive side of Zen, and uh, really discovering a true Zen that was beyond the conceptualization or the materialistic uh, Japanese forms that people tend to, to think Zen is. So um, after I got married, though, uh, pretty much. Um, my my Chinese wife was involved in a spiritual group called Fallen Dafa, and um, at that point in time, the what I was doing with Zen was not was kind of clashing with her. So, um, in you know, in order for the for my own sanity and the sanity of the family, because we had two small children at the time, I went silent for 17 years, didn't speak a word about Buddhism or Zen to anybody. Well, about um, uh, four years ago, my wife, uh, we moved to Las Vegas, and my the, my Chinese wife decided that Vegas was not for her. So she and the children left to go to live with the, the Fallen Dolphin group in New York, and I remained in um, Las Vegas. So about a year ago, I had a... Um, I would say my, a second spiritual awakening. I had my first spiritual awakening um, shortly after I started uh, my study of, of Zen in, in Portland. I had a second spiritual awakening uh, maybe about 18 months ago, a uh, very profound awakening. And um, started to reconnect with the uh, the Georgia mystic who's now 75 years old and in a wheelchair 
and reconnecting with some of the uh, people that I, that I really thought had their Dharma eye open. And it was about that time I started uh, the YouTube channel, The Path of Zen, where I presented a, a Zen that was not dependent on the Japanese materialistic views or any materialistic views. A Zen that speaks to your intuition, because that's truly what your spirit is. It's your own intuition. And that's what religion is. It's accessing your intuition. And that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half. And that's my story. Awesome. All right, well, I guess I'll go. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, my name is Truth Matters. Obviously, that's a spin on Black Lives Matter, but I think truth should matter more. <laughs> um, I grew up atheist. came from the Soviet Union. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I discovered Christianity in my teens. It saved my life. Um, then I went to college and I went to graduate school and studied philosophy and became a rationalist of sorts and also a Buddhist and then a nihilist. And, and I tend to go between all of these at different times and I'm still, still trying to find my path. That, that's all I have to say. Okay. Um, Alex? Short and sweet. Julie, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> Must be that nihilism. You were prepared hey? for it. <laughs> yeah, I can talk about nihilism all day long <laughs> if you yeah, want. Yeah. <laughs> but it won't be very encouraging. Right. No, it's not, not encouraging. Is it actually, nihilism? sorry. Before actually you start, Alex, I just realized, Julie, you also spent a lot of time in meditation centers. I don't know if you want to say something about that. That's right. I spent a lot of time in Goenka centers. Um, so, And I guess I'm still, I'm still in that tradition. But... I am not as passionate about it as I used to be. So I, part of me feels like I don't really belong here anymore. I, sometimes I feel like I do, other times I don't. Um, there's just a lot of migrating between different points of view and takes on spirituality and various other things. But generally, I'm a seeker after the truth. I always have been, no matter where it leads, and even if it leads to nihilism. So um, that, that characterizes me better than anything else. And you also traveled too. You also really went in, um, you were in India as well, right? Yeah, I actually came back from India recently. I spent a year there. I was stuck there during the pandemic. That was very interesting, <laughs> seeing <laughs> Indian culture. Uh, I spent some time in Thailand, in Myanmar. Um, yeah, in Europe also. I spent a lot of time in Europe as well. Yeah, and we yeah, actually it, met. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. Yeah, we met We met at a, at a Goenka Vipassana Center many years ago. <laughs> Yeah, thirty day. Thirty uh, day. Both serving. Yeah, we were both serving. I think the long one, weren't we? No, I never served one. a thirty day. No, we were there. You were doing long term service there, and I was there for a part of that. Oh you, yeah, yeah. yeah maybe it was after gonna... the thirty day because <laughs> I spent a full year there. I thought it was the thirty day one, but maybe it was the ten day. Oh, so you did spend a whole year there. I remember you saying you were going to do that, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, everyone says <laughs> they're going to do, do it. No one does it, but I did it. <laughs> I was there for actually nine months. But at a different time, I think when we met, that was, you know, that was a little while after that. But yeah, the Go the Goenka practice, I think, has been amazing for me in, in various respects. And I have a lot of respect for it as a practice. Um, but I think it only leads so far. Or maybe it's just, I, it's not right for me anymore. Or maybe it is. Yeah, that about covers it. Um, I'm kind of in a state of uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd have you all the same. 
Um, okay. How about you, uh, Alex? Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to maybe do this a little bit differently because I think my own journey is really a bit of a strange one compared to everyone else. Um, and I, I've probably done a little bit less formal training from what it sounds like. And I don't want to go into too much personal detail either because I think that at least for what I want to say online, it's it's somewhat irrelevant, <clears throat> at least in a, in a greatest sense. So I, I just wanted to try and contextualize things to, sh to show maybe the foundation of where I believe I've, I believe I've landed and the reasons for that and how that ties in with tradition, uh, the idea of the spiritual right uh, being a part of this group, and I guess how I'd like to pay it back, which is really what I'm trying to do uh, through being online at all. Um, so to start, um, I think that I'd just like to say that in my own view, uh, people who are attracted to these kind of paths, and it was interesting what you said there, Julie, um, uh, as a seeker, um, is some degree of what I call anyway, uh, psychological and even sometimes physical pain or dissatisfaction. I think you see that very often. And I think um, this is pretty much a correct interpretation. I mean, the Buddha essentially says that, that, um, you know, samsara is essentially uh, dissatisfactory. Um, so this kind, this kind of thing has shaped what brought me to spiritual topics. And the way I see it is people who are driven by this kind of thing are what I like to call evolutionary wildcards. And I mean that in the sense that they're not happy to watch uh, sports ball, uh, have barbecue, barbecues on weekends, even though that could be fine. Um, and then to have lots of kids and to continue the process of sports ball and barbecue. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I tend to find people in these circles and not concerned with those kinds of things because they are at some level uh, dissatisfied. They have a dissatisfied psychological state. And for better or worse, I think that's what defined myself uh, from a relatively young age. Um, but as I said, my approach was probably a little bit more disheveled than most. I had a really voracious appetite, I think, for knowledge. And this fueled a very fast-paced and probably unfocused movement through uh, Western occultism, Eastern ideas, Western philosophy, and all kinds of other, you know, often enough fringe kind of stuff. Um, and I was thinking about how to talk about this and how it's relevant to what I want to put across um, on my walk this morning. And I think what really drives everyone in terms of the psychological pain is a feeling that there's something off about the world. And I won't uh, say that the world is false or wrong or ascribe any value judgment to it. But what I think is that something feels off to people like me and to other seekers. And in this way, I think that what a seeker is essentially trying to do is to try to overcome the sense of, of things feeling off. And the way we seem to try and do that, in my opinion, is we try to construct identities as a way of getting away from the essential fact that, that what is driving us is uh, pain. Pain is being a homo sapien and dissatisfaction. And I think this is an important feature in what I'm going to talk about just quickly here. So 
in my 20s, uh, in terms of my own personal journey, I wrote a, uh, sorry, read a wonderful book called The Zelator. And this is a book by a guy called David Ovarsen, who uh, very unfortunately committed suicide, uh, I believe due to a breakdown in his marriage. And this is actually in and of itself an interesting thing. But the book goes through the experiences of, I guess, what you'd call an occult or alchemical initiate in Europe. And it recounts his interactions with his master and his master's interactions with his masters. And he does this through the prism of what was called uh, the way of the fool. And this is represented by the full tarot card. And I'm not going to go into the esoteric symbolism of the tarot card right now because it's kind of irrelevant. But for the audience, I guess the essence of the book is that the way the fool is reserved for a very lunatic type like myself who goes around and learns from different masters and they take away what they can, then they move on. And interestingly enough, this was an acknowledged path in medieval Europe, which uh, I found fascinating. So just quickly, if you look, if you take a look at the full card, you'll notice a few things about it. Um, first of all, the fool has no pants on. Uh, he's not meant to have pants. If you look at other decks where he's got pants, it's wrong. He shouldn't have any pants on. The second thing is he's carrying a rucksack with him, and that represents his karma. The third thing you'll notice is he's about to fall off a cliff, but he's entirely unaware and often looks pretty happy about it that he's about to fall off the cliff. The, set, the fourth thing, I think it's four things, isn't it? is that there's usually a vicious dog barking at him from the way that he's come. And I think this means essentially that there's no turning back at this point. So I think that really that represents pretty clearly my first years of going through these kinds of things. Um, and that's actually why I called my channel that. A uh, few people have asked why, and that, that's the reason. Um, in that book, there's a, f a famous quote by a monk in France in the 1500s called Francois Rabelais, who's a famous satirical writer. And he wrote a famous book called The, the Life of Gargantua and Pantagruel, which is basically a book about a giant and his son. Um, and I think he was providing a kind of dog whistle to this path. And he said that if you want to avoid seeing a fool, you must first break your looking glass. And that's pretty much painted the way I've approached things uh, over the years. So anyway, um, I worked and practiced a number of things uh, for a very long time, including yoga tantra and different modalities, uh, mostly not traditional methods, um, uh, really the, the method of Wilhelm Reich and his body therapy, which I still to this day think is very effective. Um, I tried Western occultism, alchemy, nothing stuck. I, I moved to Zen um, and still kind of practice Zen uh, loosely, I would say, um, not, not dogmatically. Um, and interestingly, interestingly, though, what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that I think that all of that is pretty much irrelevant to where I've ended up. Um, and in some sense, this is the whole point of what I'm trying to get at here. Um, I think. Basically, all of it was worthless, except for maybe the Reikian therapy. It was a little bit different because it creates tangible changes, I think, in character. 
<clears throat> pardon me. And it did make my life better because um, it's very physical, it focuses on the body. Um, and from sitting in Zazen, I guess I did get some strange mind states and other effects as uh, people often do. But in some sense, I think that what I've discovered now is that I was always missing the point of it entirely until very recently. And I think that maybe a bit later, Manu, we can talk about what we think defines a spiritual system. And I'd like maybe also to talk about the idea of spiritual materialism, because I think this ties into, into a, what a, a spiritual system is these days. But for me, I think what I've realized is the point of any system of transcendence uh, really, in the end, has got to be seeing uh, and not intellectually or theoretically, but experientially and empirically seeing the nature of your consciousness, like ultimately. And as far as I'm concerned, um, there's really no other reason for it. I mean, exoteric ritual may be one thing. It may bring some aesthetic satisfaction, ritual satisfaction. It may be a good way to structure a society um, along traditional lines. But for me, at least, in an experiential sense, uh, the realization for me has been that any useful system must really be aimed at realizing the true nature of self and consciousness. And I don't really see this as a reductionism like some people might. Um, so really, I guess, um, unfortunately for me, when I look back at all the sitting, all the hours spent doing all sorts of weird stuff, theorizing, reading, just you know, it basically was for nothing. I think I totally missed the point the entire time. Um, and interestingly, once I had my first glimpse um, of what I guess you'd call no self or um, uh, that, that kind of realization, all the practices that I was practicing before took on an entirely different light afterwards, where all of a sudden they didn't really become a waste of time. I'd just been completely missing the point for about 20 years prior. Um, and I think this is maybe a, a common feature with people because a lot of people I know who sit on cushions, I really feel like they're at the same place I was before. Like they haven't fully comprehended what they're doing there. There's no uh, cognition of their epistemological starting point or even really what they're doing there, I think. But what I think drives them is this essential dissatisfaction and pain uh, with life. So just quickly, um, what I want to do with my channel and with this group, at least in my own part, is to uh, discuss uh, not only historical and philosophical issues that we find interesting, but at least for my own part, is to foster what I call a more direct approach to seeing consciousness and the nature of it. And in some sense, putting an end to seeking in people. Um, as I've come to understand that really that's self-defeating in some way. Uh, and that's the only way I can really put it. And finally, I just like to talk about the way that I think this ties in with traditional spirituality, because I think it still does, even though it doesn't sound like it. Um, I'll say this about tradition, what I've noticed with traditionalists online and other people who say that they're traditionalists, and 
I've spoken with scholars on my pet podcast about this kind of thing. Many people who are into traditional paths, I think, in many ways are as guilty as those who who seem to seek to desecrate them, like people in postmodernists and, and those kinds of people. And what I mean by that is the word tradition these days tends to be used as a pejorative. So it's kind of like a dead weight tradition, got to get rid of it. It's like baggage that we, we need to get rid of. And unfortunately, I think that some traditionalists kind of see this in this way also, but instead of discarding it, they kind of embrace this nostalgia for the past. And in my experience, this is one of the things that really makes any form of realization difficult for people. Um, I've got a quote from T.S. Eliot quickly, um, where he says a tradition all those habitual actions, habits, and customs from the most significant religious rite to our conventional way of greeting a stranger, which represent the blood kinship of the same people living in the same place. And while I think this is right, and I think this is something that a lot of traditionalists can talk to, I think that's just the exoteric feature. It's just one, one feature of what tradition is. And I think one of the more interesting things that uh, Harry Oldmeadow, who's a scholar I spoke to at the traditionalist school, he said that it's called the perennialist school for a reason. And traditionalism has that dead weight. Uh, it's not a good way to describe it, but perennial is a very good way to describe it. Um, because as he says, tradition should be timeless and ever new and ever fresh and only concerned with our immediate condition now and our ultimate destiny as a species, but really just existence as you experience uh, it. And he, he uh, is a scholar of Fritjof Schuon in particular, and he has a great quote that nostalgia for the past is in itself nothing. All that is meaningful is nostalgia for the sacred, which cannot be situated anywhere else that in the now of God. And I think that pretty much sums up my view on tradition, that it's not a stultified thing. It's a living, vibrant thing that we can all find a connection with. Um, and basically, that's my story. That's how I got here. That's how I see things. And that's what I'm intending to bring to the table for, for people to consider. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, mm, that's great. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think a lot of it is that always bothered me because, you know, growing up around a very strong Hindu spiritual community, especially in LA. I mean, it was like one day my parents would almost go to some teacher, get high. And then the next couple of days I'd be getting yelled at. And it, it kind of always put this thing in my head of like, what's most people that talk about being spiritual. And this is the thing is I don't think it's like you're holier than thou. It's, it's more of a way of going through life. It's mostly about a way of being with, um, life in a way that you grow experientially and you use your mind in order to try to decondition yourself versus condition yourself. I think that's a big part of it. So if anyone wants to jump in about just what is spirituality and kind of start from there, keep going. Yeah. I think if it's not, if it's not experiential, it's not spirituality at all. I mean, I, don't, I almost don't even understand what spirituality would be if it wasn't experiential. I guess Especially in the West, you get like philosophy, right? Well, like I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a kind of person that's really prone to having spiritual experiences. In fact, I know that I am. 
But uh, even in the West, like um, amongst Pentecostal Christians, they're all about having the direct experience of God. So I really like them, and they are very conservative. Too conservative for me, personally, but <laughs> maybe you guys would like them. Uh, but I guess my issue with—maybe I, I could say more about my nihilism because it sort of relates to this uh, issue of experiencing. I tend to have experiences in many different traditions and then not really sure which one of them is correct because they can't all be correct, right? Like if you go into a Pentecostal church or whatever and you become a Christian, you will be having— uh, you know, traditional Christian experiences. And then you've become a Buddhist, you'll be having traditional Buddhist experiences. And they kind of are saying different things. They contradict each other. They can't both be true, but they're both come across as the ultimate truth and are very powerful. And both paths are very powerful, but they contradict each other. So it's like you kind of end up in nihilism. That's my issue. Um, yeah. All right. Um, so speaking from the the esoteric Zen view, or what we would also call dark Zen, spirituality, as least in the esoteric view of it, is your intuition. That is the your, your simple knowing without the conceptualization of thought. And this is a um, this is you can read about this in all of the old Zen texts, the, the people who would be, they would term as the great Zen masters. And um, this intuition is, is truly the heart of, of what Zen is getting at, the developing it, the trust in it, and the bringing it out. But it's also the spirituality uh, when you when you allow the intuition to surface and you're not you know, clubbing it down with that, you know, that psychophysical self that we call the, the false self. This intuition, we would say, can flow within the Buddha matrix, the Tathagatha Garbha. Um, and this intuition within this flow could, some people can call that, you know, the, the Buddha nature. Uh, some people would call that, you know, your, your soul flowing, flowing, where you would see and know ultimate truth. But it's a non-conceptual knowing. It's not something you can say, oh, ultimate truth is is blue with polka dots and and has horns. You know, you, you can't say that because there is no conception. But yet, you know it. And I think a lot of people attempt to go and to, you know, when they say they want to be spiritual, I think what they're saying, and at least what I hear, is that they want to be more intuitive. There's something there too, right? I mean, it, if it's intuitive in, intuition coming from being deconditioned, it, it basically presupposes that there's already something there behind all that, right? As well, would you say? Well, I would say that there's a, you know, I think we from early on are are shoved into a world of analytical thinking and that's process oriented, and we we are told to conform to follow the rules. And I think we build up a, a false view, a false self. This is the esoteric self, the in, the one that I, I would call Mark, and uh, the one that suffers, and that suffers in this world because it, it clings for status, it clings for uh, needs, it clings for wanting to be somebody, be seen. And there's there's an incredible amount of suffering in in that particular uh, false self, but the intuitive self, 
which is what when, when people say, oh, I want to be spiritual. That in, it's that intuitive self that doesn't cling because there's nothing to cling to. And it's free because it's always been free. And that's what I believe people, when they say spiritual or becoming spiritual or, or learning spirituality, that's what I hear, is they're learned to be free. I mean, I've been studying a lot of the psychology recently. It's funny because they use intuition in such a dirty way. It's like all the science that we have now is because it's counterintuitive. And I know you don't mean it that way, you know, but I know that um, I always felt like there does have to be some sort of esoteric, which there, I'm sure there is, and you could probably go into detail yeah. about within Zen, the esoteric well, underpinnings of how intuition functions. Yeah, the reason I turned my back on psychology when I was in college was because it psychology is to to some it, it's 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 more of a process to get you to more or less accept the chains and the bonds of this psychophysical existence that you call yourself and it psych, psychology is to get you to cope with it <clears throat> and i felt that i did not see that as a path i wanted necessarily to go down and inflict on others so i turned my back on it yeah i mean it's definitely been until maybe very recently purely um, focused on pathologies you know and basically people with schizophrenia or really severe mental illnesses and it's only really in the past couple years almost that people have been thinking oh wait you know maybe there is some i don't know having i guess a broader context of mind you know i mean even the the rising of science like why science is so materialism i've been getting kind of into that in a lot of my uh studies and it's it's quite fascinating it really comes back to the fact that at the beginning it was basically the church versus the scientists. And basically, in order for science to exist, it had to basically not touch on anything the church was talking about. And since the mind kind of overlapped too much with the church, you just end up basically with, you know, just seeing all experiences, the subject of brain phenomenon versus anything else. And then, you know, the church could keep its philosophy and keep most of the, what would now even, I mean, be, be, keep, keep the entire domain of mind basically within the church which is kind of interesting and that's why i think there's so many problems especially now anyway pony you want to jump in on this what do you got with regard to what in particular what is spirituality and just maybe your overall take a little bit uh in short i would say spirituality would be transcendence like transcending this world quote unquote or uh getting out of plato's cave or red pilling out of the matrix or at least trying to. I think uh, someone who's sincerely trying and still doesn't succeed, at least, um, you know, they're they're trying to be spiritual, and maybe maybe that would be, uh, you know, through courtesy, good enough to call them spiritual. But uh, as as Buddhism teaches, uh, pretty much all schools of Buddhism would agree that this world that we're living in right now is not the highest reality. So. Uh, a spiritual person is someone who's trying to go beyond this uh, this matrix or whatever you want to call it and uh, get into uh, a deeper reality, if not the ultimate reality. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, kind of moving on to the next thing, which is kind of like, what is the right? Um, you know, I think really for you, Pano, I mean, most of this is inspired by you because honestly, your channel, which was the politically incorrect dharma i'd never seen anyone that was willing to actually get into anything political that was like legitimate had a legitimate spiritual backing kind of already behind them that had already done all this meditation and experience and that was always kind of one thing with me it was like 
I mean, I always felt like spirituality at some point and politics because like politics to me is kind of where the ugliness of real life meets kind of our idealism and what we're trying to accomplish spiritually. Like it somehow meets in this political domain and it's not just about, you know, who is elected into office or some sort of election. It's kind of, you know, it overlaps philosophically. And that's why I think even Socrates or Aristotle, you know, maybe you start out with abstract, like what is the soul? What is spirit? And eventually you get down to like, okay, well, how should we govern ourselves? Cause I think there has to be some sort of point where rubber meets the road. And it's so easy for all these traditions just to talk about, oh, I believe in this and we should all be happy and we should all just like platitude after platitude and no one to ever really kind of get down to their own struggles with real life, which I think also hits the political side of things. And that's kind of a big part of my um, inspiration for this group. So if anyone wants to jump on that. To go into politics. Yeah, I mean, I really had no interest at all in politics. Um Starting back when I realized that what is good and right from a political point of view is not necessarily what is good and right from a spiritual or ethical point of view, you know, like like war, for example, it's just from a Buddhist point of view, it's just mass murder. But um, politically, you know, if, if a culture is going to survive, it has to defend itself, and that may require war occasionally. Um, gradually, I got more interested in, in politics again when I started. Uh, and really, when I came back to America, because I was just apolitical, living alone in a forest, um, you know, the, the only politics I was exposed to was the uh, the politics of the, the Burmese military dictatorship, which was, uh, um, you know, banana republic kind of politics, um, kind of interesting in its, in its own way, but it really didn't affect me deeply. And then I came back to America and all of a sudden it was just... Um, Buddhism was so different in the West than it was in Burma, where it was just you know, just traditional people are just born into it. You know, it's um, you know they don't want to change anything. It's you know it's it's a tradition that's centuries old with just minor adjustments. You know, that just you have to change some things. You just you have to have loudspeakers or whatever. You know, technology at least is going to be influencing the. Um, very old tradition, but come to America and it's just without roots. And um, as most of us know, all of us here, that uh, Buddhism in the West is uh, predominantly a, a leftist phenomenon. And um, there, there's often more leftism than there is Buddhism in the, in the Dharma halls. And so did you realize uh, that, by the way, I'm just curious, was there like a moment where you're like, this is, politics like it's like when you came well, back i i was at first i just thought that it was uh um i didn't realize that it had pervaded the entire culture at least like the the popular culture of the west i thought it was just some sort of strange quirk about western buddhism where people are um and just essentially socialists <laughs> <laughs> politically correct socialists and um rather lukewarm also and and still materialistic but then again socialism is uh tends to be atheistic and materialistic so um there's that but um yeah i i, I don't know exactly when it really struck me that uh that really just the whole western western civilization is just uh um 
been indoctrinated into a kind of uh, essentially socialism or quasi-socialism. I don't it's know exactly. It happened only a few years ago. It happened only a few years ago. Like it just blew up all of a sudden. It was there underneath, like brewing in the academia. It's been there forever for decades, mm. but it was sort of on the fringe for a long time. And then I don't know, maybe twenty six. Yeah, actually, the Trump election. Uh, maybe before that, before that. So like twenty fifteen or so, it just sort of blew up into the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would have to agree with that. I really got red pilled was around end of two thousand fifteen or early two thousand sixteen. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw the telltale signs of the encroaching left and Marxism in the Dharma Zen centers around 1997 when I left. And that was actually the last time I set foot in any Buddhist temple was 1997. And I still I have never set foot back in one. I, uh, I Within the last year, people have made it very clear to me that it's only been since... 2015, that there's this real hard push in Mar- of Marxism in the left, but mostly what they tell me is it's more of a of an attitude of we kind of a, a younger, more iconoclastic crowd saying that we don't need teachers, we don't need traditions, we don't need um to be told what to do because we already know what to do. It's it's just it's, there's this belief that that they already know. They they it's like it's like you can't tell us because we tell ourselves. Mm. And that's that's sort of this millennial uh, koan that I people ask me, which is what's going on here. I mean, they're talking about climate change. They're talking about uh, gender issues. They're talking about racial issues. And all I want to do is learn the Dharma. The and, virtue signaling. Yeah, and the virtue signaling. And it's like, well, I said, it's, it's, it's because that they already think they know the Dharma. And it's because it's not that because they're reading out of the book. It's because they're telling themselves that this is the Dharma. It's, it's sort of this... I don't know how to say it. It's sort of like going in front of a mirror and saying, aha, I'm going to preach to you and you're my, and you're my audience. And they, they just believe what they say. And this has also been an accusation of the millennial crowd. And when you say things kind of brewed up within the last couple of years, that's because the millennials came of age. Yeah, the compassion stuff too is really big. When it's like anyone I would talk to is like talking about how they're so compassionate and more compassionate than me because, you know, they believe in all these far left Marxist policies. You know, because of course they're on the side of the people who are not being oppressed, and if unless you're on their side, then obviously you're oppressing everybody and not nearly as liberated. I mean, I think even before it kind of came up to me when I was going, actually, I, I was interested in Zen, so I actually ended up going to a Zen place here in L.A. And uh, then they started going on after the thing about global warming and how all these people are so selfish and evil and they're doing the same stuff pretty much. It's like you're not really helping. But it was just like it was um, and I was not a big fan already of the whole idea of uh, global warming. Just kind of I mean, I, I still have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think environment, we can all kind of get behind pollution. And I wish the conversation was more around pollution and less around some sort of apocalyptic global warming scenario. but. 
it is what it is. Um, yeah, you want to jump in, Alex? Anything? Um, only to say that um, human beings are religious animals, and they'll find it somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's in tradition or uh, climate change, that's really all I have to say on it. Yeah, uh, Paul Tillich defines religion as the ultimate concern. So whatever you're, and also um, Jordan Peterson defines it that way too. But he says it's the the highest value in a hierarchy of values. So and everybody has to have the highest value unless you're painfully confused, according to Jordan Peterson, which makes sense, obviously. Um, so yeah, whatever it is that you're devoted to, whatever is the most important thing, that is your religion. And for many people, that is politics. Uh, but I think Buddhism has always been very far left because it was brought to the West by the hippies. And that was just their thing. So they brought it here and they started these meditation centers and they imbued it with their philosophies. And they have their takes, which are not necessarily inaccurate often. Like they, they prioritize compassion over equanimity, for instance. Like they prioritize the feminine over the masculine because those were their values. I think that is an aspect of Buddhism, but there's this other aspect that they don't prioritize. Uh, like the more masculine equanimity side of it. They do more so in the Goenka tradition, but not so much in the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I would say that's that's very insightful. Um, I saw the same thing in where, you know, generally when you say you're a Buddhist to the people in the public, you're kind of telling everybody you're a leftist because they, <laughs> Buddhist, Buddhism is considered a leftist religion. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it's like, that's the esot- the exoteric. That's how it's the outwardly appearance of it is, but you know the the esoteric is quite something different. Um, and I, I was gonna say it it doesn't really become a left or right. Uh, I mean, when I started Bud- when I started with Zen back in the 1995, I would say it was fairly centrist, maybe more uh, right leaning back in those days. But then as the I think it's just the, you know, the, the the kind of people that come in. It's like what Alex was saying that people will make a religion out of anything, and they 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 brought in their politics and they brought in their um, worldly views, and well, now we are faced with a uh, very leftist Marxist uh, Dharma centers, which I get plenty of people talking to me about it on in the comments on my channel. I mean, I almost feel like the leftism arises out of a fact of a lack of religious or spiritual understanding. That there was something kind of more assumed prior when there was like this overpowering, you know, Christian force or Hindu or whatever it was that basically ran the whole culture. You know, maybe in some ways people are more oppressed, but they have a more clearer understanding of like where their meaning is supposed to come from on a mass scale. And then as soon as you strip that away and kind of make people try to find their own meaning, which is kind of what we have to do in the West now, they basically grab the closest thing. Um, I don't know. I guess it would be closest. I mean, it just seems to be like they grab politics because they can't almost in a sense engage in philosophy. That's kind of how I feel about it a little bit. Well, I think Western there's a religion lot of truth has been destroyed. That. Was that Zara's Western joy? religion has been destroyed, and then there nothing really has taken its place. So politics is what took the place of religion, uh, and then some people are also Buddhist. But but there's also the sense that somehow humanism is deeper than Buddhism. Like Buddhism should um, conform to humanist ideals, 
like if it you know if it fails to do that then it's not a true religion or it's it, it's not the truth um or i think a lot of people nowadays just equate religion with heart just compassion that's like the essence of religion is just heart this heart that heart 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 and if i would sometimes i'd give a talk and someone would come up afterwards and they say, I felt a lot of heart in what you were saying. Well, then they were praising me. But, you know, if they if they were saying you seem to be like in your head when you were giving that, I mean, they were just <laughs> essentially saying they disapprove because head is um, inferior to heart somehow, which is largely just the feminization of Dharma in the West. I don't know if I agree with that. So I don't think that's the feminization. Of th- there is a feminization of Dharma, but I don't think that is a manifestation of it. I think uh, when people say they're they're in their heart, that means that you are very present and they could like really feel what you were saying deeply in their experience. Whereas where if you were in your head, it was just conceptual and not it's very shallow and conceptual. That's what people usually mean in these circles when they say these things. I mean, it's weird because I do think there's something to intellectually understanding stuff and processing it. And a lot of times it's. um You know, I don't know. I've, I've met so many people that can't articulate anything ever. Or debate, and I know this is one of your frustrations as well, Julie. When you talk to a lot of people, where it's like yeah. you can't actually, they can't articulate, they haven't thought it through. It's almost all heart, no, you know, yeah, no brains at instinct. all, and it, that doesn't work. Well, no, that doesn't the work. It's just as powerful as the heart. I mean, both are equally powerful and valid spiritual mm-hmm. approaches. Like, uh, like Gyana Yoga in in Hinduism would be a, a path of the head. And it's, uh, I, I assume it'd be like, even like meditative insight would be uh, like a path of, of the head rather than uh, something more like bhakti, which would be more heart oriented. And karma yoga somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I think the point uh, is to possibly. integrate the heart and the head. The point is to yeah. integrate them, is to have realizations that are, that permeate both the head and the heart. But in the West, we do tend to be in the head a lot. So it would be better if we're focused on more on our, you know, direct experience and more in the body than. I mean, there's usually a recognition that you're gifted towards one or the other. And so like you will develop, like if you're really intellectual, you'll use the mind to end up integrating the heart, like you're saying, but it would still be a, you know, I mean, I always said it, Yana, but I guess it's, I don't know. You said a different Gianna. Well, I wanted to say something here Um, on this, on this topic. I see when people, you know, I watch other videos and other other teachers and what they're trying to do, and I see a lot of spiritual materialism, and I see a lot of people trying. It's like they reject. It's like there's a rejection of the traditions. There's a a rejection of the, the the established churches and the established ways. And then they, so they turn and they say, well, I want to be spiritual, but I, they're, they're outright rejecting the traditions and the traditional paths because they think they already know it all. And then, so they turn around and I believe it's like they create a, 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 a new spiritual materialistic view or new materialistic out, um, outpouring of what they're trying to do. And I believe it turns into this, this, more or less this seemingly um, politics of compassion or this more Marxism that we are now seeing it uh, coming in as. And it's more of the dictatorship of compassion. It's like, well, if we were all compassionate and give our money to the homeless, then they won't be homeless. It's, it's sort of that kind of view. 
and it's a materialistic view on spiritual issues or on a spiritual question. And that's what I've been really seeing a lot within these discussions and various other channels. Um, so the was, sorry, it's it's just like I said, it's just very it's just more of the compounding of the spiritual materialistic spiritualism. Yeah, and when I was talking about that before, that's an interesting point because I think that a big thing today is identity. People are, uh, lack identity because they don't have. Uh, those traditional underpinnings to their civilization, the way they're brought up. It's this nihilistic chaos that's everywhere, and you need to determine yourself what your identity is going to be, which I think is beyond the capacity of most people, to be honest. And it just leads to, first of all, that people are going to be easy to manipulate, but second of all, um, that most people, as I said, just don't have the capacity to be able to do that it's a difficult task right it's not not easy to do and what i noticed um in dharma halls and other places that i've been over the years is for me what spiritual materialism really uh gets at is this desire for an identity which really shouldn't be the desire when you go to a, a dharma hall for example you're after something different but i really feel like most people I come across are after an identity. And, and part of this is adopting the material elements of living a spiritual life. So we've all seen these people, right? They're wearing beads and, you know, Thai fisherman pants or something. Again, not that there's anything wrong with this, but um, I feel like these people are so desperate for an identity that they just grab onto these outer trappings of these paths. And they, they latch onto it. And the whole time through that process of trying to find an identity, they're missing the essential message of what the tradition is trying to tell them. Because I don't think they're, they're there for transcendence. I think that they're there because they're confused and they're there because they want an identity. And through them being young, they're brought up um, inculcated with leftist uh philosophy and outlooks right from day dot they don't have an alternative so really um uh, being a nihilist julie like you uh very much so i think that people are just really too dim-witted to <laughs> find their way out of it and you, yeah it's expecting a lot of the average person to have these realizations i think um and no amount of sitting on a cushion is going to do it for them because they're not there for that. They're there for something entirely different. Also, just yeah, well, the enticing moral superiority is so great. It just leads to the difference between spirituality and mere religion. Or religion, I mean, it can just be purely superficial. I mean, it still can be uh, very uh, fulfilling or satisfying to people who just want a tribe. They want something to occupy their time. You know, they they need the they need the religion in the sense of you know whatever they value the most highly, something like that. But uh, still, that doesn't necessarily involve any transcendence whatsoever. Yeah. So for the last kind of part, I just wanted to maybe, I mean, as far as the future of the spiritual right, and I mean. One thing I've been, we've talked about a little bit is I definitely want to have retreats in the future. Um, if it is possible, I don't know if it's possible to ever get everyone in one place, but I mean, I definitely want to attempt to do something like that, you know, and besides just putting out content, 
you know, we're the website's still underway and uh, pretty soon we'll be able to put articles there as well and make videos about that and post stuff too. So that's where all that's going. And I, I think I just wanted to maybe say a little bit too about, you know, kind of bring it full circle since we talked about our lives of uh, where we're currently at, I think would be kind of good just to kind of conclude things. You know, for me, I think, um, you know, I think on the left, like we were talking about, a lot of it, I think, really is moral superiority, where you want to feel like you are better than other people versus kind of, I almost like almost the Christian view of you're a sinner better than I like the view of like, well, you're just this divine, perfect being, because at least one, usually, I mean, if you, how to say, understand it correctly, I think, can lead to more humility. And I think humility really is the number one thing of a spiritual seeker. It's saying, you know, okay, well, I can see my own greed. I can see my frustration. I can see my lust. I have these issues. I'm going to let it go and try to shift my perspective of who I am and what I am and let it go of a lot of this stuff in order to uh, have more love and get this connected to this unknown force that I can experience but can't really ever fully articulate because it's something beyond, as far as I'm concerned, duality and beyond the mind uh, exists prior to the mind. And so, um, yeah, I think um, I've, I've had a lot of frustration too um, with myself. I think as I grew up around so many different spiritual teachers and spiritual teachings, I always just felt like I was constantly behind in some ways that for some reason, no one else had the same questions, the same frustrations. Everyone else has it. Like they're kind of like, satisfied like that that part is already settled but then i kind of realized most people just aren't working that's actually what i'm witnessing is the fact that the majority of people aren't really trying to do any sort of deep work on them or can't even see that there's deep work to do which is kind of like two levels back and um in reality i think that real spiritual work is like okay well you know i struggle with this i struggle with that how can i how can i really dive into these things experientially let them go and and communicate too. I'm, I've always been a big communicator. I really like talking about these things, which is why I'm really happy to have all you guys here. I, I you know, was so, um, I wasn't sure how all this was going to end up, especially since the developmental period of trying to get everyone together and talk. You know, I think it was like a six month process or something. And then I think I got COVID in there too. And I mean, it's been rough, but I'm, I'm just so happy and grateful to have all you guys here. And um, I feel like this is, you know, it, it's when you're being pulled by society and everything else that just doesn't really have these same interests or understand that there's this spiritual world worth pursuing, you know, having each other in order to have these conversations really to me just brings me back. The same reason why I kind of like actually being in university right now, too, because it forces me to keep looking at these issues instead of just being like, OK, well, I'm just going to do my job and work and now I can kind of ignore everything. And that was always kind of my fear, too, you know, just getting wrapped up in the world, which everyone else seems to be wrapped up in. And, you know, I think it gives for a pretty meaningless existence, especially when you're about to die and you realize, well, what did I really do or accomplish here? What's my life for? Who, you know, and all the, I feel like all the big questions have to be answered at that time to some degree. So, um, yeah, if anyone wants to kind of chime in. Yeah. So I feel that my, um, purpose of my channel, and I kind of really hope now with the uh, the spiritual right group, is to bring about the awareness of this false um, materialistic identity that we build out of these religious paths that we might be on, or these religious ideals that we take up, or even 
the the politics that we engage ourselves in that builds up this false materialistic view of ourselves that only creates suffering. And I, I pointed out particularly, you know, because I see an incredible amount of this materialistic self, this false self within Zen, and people try to paint that as Zen because they don't know what real Zen is. And my uh, my channel attempts to teach them what real Zen is. Uh, with the spiritual right, I, I think we can take that another step and you know show them that, uh, or show the the viewers that the the false self comes in many different packages. You know, it could come in politics, it could come in uh, even these senses of what compassion is or what uh, your what you're doing is you're making a self out of it and how you're suffering. So I believe we have value here for you. I would really like to see an integrated take on spirituality that I don't see in spiritual circles very much because um, there's this focus on the light and feeling happy and good. And I think that's often an evasion. Um, most quote unquote spiritual people are born into ideal circumstances. They don't really see much suffering so they avoid it and pretend it doesn't exist and i find this incredibly annoying and i don't think um the ultimate truth is really light i think it's beyond the light and the darkness i have to i think you have to go through the darkness to get to something that's beyond the light and the darkness that's truly non-dual so that would be something that i'd be interested in pursuing yeah you have to deal with the difficult issues and i think that's one advantage of christianity over a lot of the the dharma groups where um, some 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 person who's going astray, they'll be admonished. Whereas yeah, in a lot sure. of the Buddhist groups that that I've um, that I participated in, somebody might actually bring something up in in a group like, "How do we deal with uh, having been a victim of incest as a child?" And it's like dropping a brick because everybody wants to be in this state of bliss, you know. And so one of the teachers, I mean, they might just be in a state of semi panic and just, well, "We'll we'll deal with that later," you know. And let's get back into the bliss zone, you know. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that's that's true spirituality. That's people just wanting to be happy and feel good about themselves and. Uh, moving around with a blissful smile and moving in slow motion and so forth. And uh, um, yeah, that's, I think there needs to be more than that. A hundred percent. You summed up my feelings a hundred percent. And I guess for me, I think they're all great points. Um, for me, it's, it's really that, that perspective of, first of all, the spiritual material identity. I think that's such a trip up. Um, certainly was for me, not that I was too bad, but um, I'd like to kind of give the message as well that it's okay to live in the world successfully, um, live a good life, have friends, have a you know good career if that's what you want to do, and also remain mindful uh, to reality. Um, you can you can have a good life in the world, a powerful life in the world, and uh, you can also have at the same time, I think, a very significant degree of awakening um, to, you know, I guess what we call the perennial nowness. These things are not mutually exclusive. You don't need to do one or the other. I don't need to have dreadlocks and not have a job, and that defines my 
spiritual thing, but I can't do this. I can't do that. I think that those limitations need to be done away with, uh, away with because consciousness and mindfulness uh, can be done anywhere, anytime, uh, without any particular structure as well, actually, uh, in my opinion. And um, I'd like to collapse that border between those two things um, because I see a lot of people struggling uh, to live a life, actually. Uh, where the spirituality becomes a crutch and i don't think it needs to be the case so that that's one thing that i'm interested in bringing to the table yeah and just in, in conclusion then um you know all of us it, it might seem like we're all in uh some sort of agreement but actually all of us have quite diverse views i'm probably the only one that maybe even identifies as being more conservative um and even then when it comes to republican and policy i i vary quite a bit um, and I know all of us have different views. I mean, a lot of people, even in this group, don't even consider themselves conservatives, but maybe even classical liberals. And so, um, for that reason, you know, I think that's why it's so interesting. I think there's a really good kind of heart connection here, um, and head. Let's forget both. We don't want to just talk about the heart. Um, and so, yeah, just, uh, thank you. And I look forward to seeing what future conversations have. And, um, thank you for watching. And uh, if anyone has anything else, I think include uh, here. Anyone else got anything they want to add? Okay. Thank you for watching. Have a good night.